Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, season's greetings, whether you're working this Christmas or taking it easy. Christmas is always a good time to take stock, of course, and we're taking this opportunity to look back at some of the stories that have featured on Londonist in 2014. From hard-edged politics to bubble football to misbehaviour on self-driving cars, in this extended episode we'll be rounding up some of the cream of the year. Whether you're a veteran listener or slightly newer to the show and wherever you're listening from, If you're doing Christmas, I hope you have a great one. If not, I hope you get a break all the same. And may the holiday period bring you all manner of good things. Today being the 26th of December 2014. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. This is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. a very happy Boxing Day to you if you're celebrating it. I am hoping that we're coming to you on today's episode through a steam of reheated turkey and uh, mince pies. I'm at Londonist headquarters and we're recording this just before Christmas. So if anything interesting has happened on Christmas Day, we won't know about it yet. But we've had a news-packed year, an eventful year in 2014. And with me at Londonist headquarters, editor of Londonist James Drury, senior editor, Rachel Holdsworth, and we're, we're trying to work out why the job title seemed to imply that she is uh, further up the pecking order. And Ben Norham, he's the food and drinks editor here, and I think this is the first time we've ever actually recorded in Londonist HQ. I knew it must exist. Yeah, I have a great pleasure to be rounding up the year at, at the end of a very exciting 2014. Rachel, you keep your eye on the political tiller. Uh, has it been a busy year 2014 for London? Oh, it's been unbelievably busy politically-wise. There's lots of uh, political nerds to get their teeth into. Uh, what about the food and drink scene, Ben? Uh, yeah, it's been a, a very big year indeed. Food and drink, more restaurants opening than pretty much ever before. I don't have stats to back that up. But, um, but, but yeah, there's certainly been a lot going on. Let's crack on. What we've done, we've divided the year up uh, by month, so we're going to head into January, which seems a very long time ago. Um, what have we got on the agenda for January 2014? What are we looking back at today? 
Um, well, I think my favourite bit of content from January 2014 was a piece that Ben wrote, um, and I don't wish to be sycophantic, um, which was about... is, is this setting the tone for the podcast? You're just going <laughs> to circle each other's oh, oh, I've got some controversy coming up later, so um, hopefully we'll uh, not fight with each other over that one. Um, but... What you should do is finish that with, and one of you will get fired. <laughs> uh, no, I can't do that. Uh, my, I think my favourite piece from January 2014 was Ben's piece around great meals out for under £20. I particularly like to eat out. It does eat a massive hole into my bank balance, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, and I've really enjoyed this roundup for places you can go, not just the usual, you know, buffets and, and eat all you can for 15 quid. And there were some actually decent, really good restaurants in there. There's some that I didn't know about, so I'm looking forward to getting, getting my teeth into in 2015. There's no way that can possibly include wine. Uh, yeah, it does. Absolutely. Really? Uh, yeah, it or includes drinks. I picked the restaurants based on going out for a meal where you would feel like you have had a proper meal experience, not just popping in somewhere and having a, a plate of something. There's so many restaurants in London that they have to compete. It is a competitive scene and um, there are some really good deals out there. Of course, it, it does bear mentioning that every single thing that we talk about today is searchable on uh, the web. You're going to be able to find all these articles. Um, what's the odds of uh, any of those places not having put their prices up, do you think? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, and I will have to go through and have a have a look at that for maybe a, another article soon. Um, but I'd be surprised if many have put the prices up too much. Probably might have to add a pound or two onto some of the prices that are there. But hopefully they've kept the same value for money um, idea. What about, Rachel, your January story? My favourite thing from January was one of those WTF moments from Twitter. So I remember just, just being sitting at home and watching all these stories come out. And it was the story of a concrete flood in a Victoria line uh, control room. And it was true. It was one of those things where you go, nah, nah, that's photoshopped. Nah, that's absolutely not true. And it was. It was, comple- it was completely true. A bunch of quick-setting concrete um, ended up knackering all the wires and just destroyed the Victoria line for an evening, which was hilarious. I mean, not if you were on the line, but hilarious to watch. But this was a colossal quantity of concrete as well. Was it, what was the reason for it? Um, they were doing works. I've got the story up in front of me. They were doing works at the time, or the engineers were doing works in in, in the, the building, and it just got into the control room. Being one of those stupid, stupid things that happens. <laughs> have you have you ever had that experience where you knock a glass of water onto your laptop? And, and just imagine by how many factors worse uh, concrete on your laptop is. I seem to remember that somebody, some sort of engineer suggested that uh, sugar was the answer to that problem. Did you ever hear that? Oh, I remember that, yeah. I can't remember why they said it, but yeah, sugar. Why would it have been sugar? I don't know. I thought there was some sort of chemical reason for it. This is really your department, Ben. Yeah, it's something I, I haven't yet experimented with in, in, with food and drink. What do we have on the menu? This has got to stop all this food-based panic. <laughs> I'm drawing a line. Uh, what, what do we have for January 2014? Uh, for January, I actually picked uh, something completely non-food related. Uh, 15 ways to improve London's train network. Um, without building a single inch of new track. A lot of fun, um, but with some very serious ideas in it. How, how guessable are these? You can try and guess them. If, you've been, if you're have been, if you a Londonist regular reader and a bit of a nerd, you might guess some of them. Um, an extra carriage on every train? No. Nope. More advantages to travelling off-peak? No. Nope. <sighs> okay, well, some of the ideas, um, I think, to have overground trains stop at uh, a stop in Brixton um, because of the overground pass is really close to where the the station is so to make an interchange there i'm just looking at it now there's showing more connections on the map to show where you could walk between stations um 
Uh, there's another one uh, combining Bethnal Green's uh, national rail and tube stations for interchange. So, yeah, a lot of sort of common sense ideas, but that you might not actually think of. That sounds like one idea three ways. Yeah, probably a, a fair point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just connect everything up better. What about uh, as we move into February, James, what caught your eye? Yeah, um, for me, from my point of view, a lot of the things that we cover on Londonist is suggestions for things that we can do and things that people can enjoy while they're out. Um, and a lot of our family-focused content um, is around the kind of things that you can enjoy with your kids um, or your uh, your siblings' kids, if you're an uncle or auntie. But something I picked on was a list of child-friendly restaurants. So often you hear people who are not parents or don't have children with them complaining maybe there's kids in the restaurant and it's irritating them. But I think it's very nice to find somewhere which really welcomes young people with open arms, young kids with open arms. So you can go there feeling fully confident that there's going to be good good quality uh, food and there's going to be a good menu selection for youngsters i i like the encyclopedic element that goes on there the idea that with one link with each of your two stories so far you've got all this need to know london information yeah i think that's the thing that i find really useful about londonist um as a reader uh, without being the editor is that i get to learn so many things and, and pick up so many tips the thing that really struck me about this piece was that it wasn't just picking out very obvious child-friendly restaurants it's some restaurants which um you wouldn't necessarily think of uh, and which but do which do provide a really good child-friendly service rachel february tube strikes it's all about the tube strikes in, in february it might seem like a long time ago but it, well it was a big story it was a 48 hour strike it was mr crow not behind this well this depends on your point of view doesn't it so uh the the whole problem around the tube strikes and this is these discussions are still going on but um the rmt have sort of given up striking over it for the time for the time being um so transport for london wants to well they are starting i think it's march or april next year shutting down every single ticket office on the network there's going to be i think 11 or 12 um what they're calling ticket inf- or travel information centers so if, if you desperately need to do one of the things that can't be done by a ticket machine, you are going to have to go into central London. And this TfL decided to do this without any consultation. It's going to involve the loss of about 900 frontline staff members' jobs. Now, they're also introducing 24-hour running on weekends on certain lines, and that's going to involve hiring 200 staff. doesn't necessarily mean that any of those 900 staff are going to get these jobs, because you can imagine somebody who normally works in a ticket office isn't going to want to you know work at three in the morning oxford circus necessarily so this was primarily what the tube strike was about um the unions and the staff said this is going to be an appalling um experience for customers it's it's going to you know cause an awful lot of problems it's going to make uh, stations less safe because also a lot of the suburban stations are only going to be staffed by one person in the future i want to know what happens when that person goes for a lunch break or needs the loo never quite managed to get an answer from tfl out of that well i've got a pretty good idea uh, my local station there's constantly in the what used to be the ticket office window a sign saying uh, the office is closed and if the machine if the automatic ticket buying machine is also out of play then you've got no way of buying a ticket either exactly this is the, the thing tfl says that by this is almost a direct quote, that by getting staff out from behind glass and in the 
four years with with iPads. They're all going to have iPads apparently. Um, it's going to be a lot more convenient, and the stations will be safer. But if there's just one person of, of staff on the station, well, that person is going to have to do all the stuff around the ticket machines. It's all, they're also going to have to help out people with mobility problems. They're going to have to do an awful lot of stuff and an awful lot of the time that's not going to be visible. TfL insists that's not the case, but surely just common sense says that it is. As you can tell, Rachel writes a lot about this kind of thing. And what's the heading of the story here so that people can dig into this in greater depth? If anybody wants to do a search, I actually interviewed um, a couple of union members while they were in negotiations at ACAS. But if you want to Google it, Google the um, title, A Look at the Reasons Behind the Tube Strike. Basically, the reason TfL's doing it, they say it's... um, to modernise, really it's because they're losing a tonne of money from the government and they have to make savings. The strikes are over but the issues remain and uh, we'll be coming back to those I'm sure in the coming year and uh, February, Ben. I actually picked the same article there as Rachel so tube strikes again. In terms of her uh, assessment of it do you differ from Rachel's view in any way? Uh, No, I very much agree Um, and I think what I liked about the article was it wasn't really a a, this is the view it was taking a look at the different points of view so it's just refreshing to to be able to see that very clearly in one place what the reasons are Um, I think the article was very fair in pointing out maybe some needs for modernization as well but not necessarily the way they're going about things but they're all covered with CCTV. Um, there's a lot of security from that point of view. I don't particularly buy either point of view, to be honest. There's a lot of hyperbole on both sides, and I'm yet to be convinced on, of either side as to which is actually going to pan out to be the right way. Let's move on to March. Yes, March. Um, I really love our coverage of secret and hidden bits of London. Um, and this was one that was particularly interesting to me, which uh, in which our editor at large, uh, Matt Brown, got the chance to go to some uh, of the secret hidden parts of St Paul's Cathedral. He took a lot of photos up there. We also made a video which we published in, in April. This was towards the end of March. So, um, And there were some fascinating bits of the cathedral that as a general member of the general public you don't usually get to see you certainly don't get to see on any of the tours and so from my point of view uncovering these bits that don't often get seen and certainly don't get seen by the public are the bits that really fascinate me that must just be my journalist in me because i i'm so nosy i don't like not knowing things no not at all one of, one of the most uh, amazing things about st paul's when you read an account of the blitz is that wren almost designed this thing to bounce bombs off it the inner shell is such that the bombs kind of entered and then were flung back out again uh which could only help with that miraculous escape that it had rachel march oh the launch of london live which has turned into uh, that's my favorite Really? Do you watch it? Yes, there's the, the morning show in, the, uh, in that particular studio and then there's the afternoon show in the same studio and then all the, ev- the evening show in that, in that studio again. And then all the repeats in the evening. It's basically a London version of Dave with a bit of news chucked in. Yeah, how's it going? I've got absolutely no idea. I occasionally watch repeats of Coupling and Greenwing. I don't know. <laughs> uh, good, Ben. Uh, in March, I did an article about London's strangest restaurants, which was good fun to write and hopefully good fun to read as well. Um, did, did you have to go to the restaurants? Um, I have been to all of them. I think I haven't eaten at every single one, um, but I have been to them and seen them. Um, there's one, Herwindecki, which I haven't eaten at yet, where you can get your hair cut um, and you can also eat Korean food. Um, which I think is a quite unusual combination. <laughs> so yeah, there's another one, Circus in Covent Garden, uh, slightly more sort of 
uh, deliberately branded where you you do you can see circus performances whilst you eat including on your table um so yeah just a nice opportunity to give people something a bit different to do Oh, we're moving unapologetically quickly through uh, the year because there's so much to get in. Uh, we come to April. Uh, again, grubbing around in the hidden parts of London, I've picked uh, our video about the mail rail, which is that secret subterranean... Well, it's not so secret really, but it's a subterranean railway which runs the, the width of London, uh, which ferried uh, post and mail from one side to the other, constructed because there were so many problems with congestion at the time um and but it was disused from about the 1970s 80s um i'm vague on it sorry um i think some people think this doesn't exist oh it absolutely does and we've got a video to prove it i'm curious i've not seen the video yet but jeff's not a short chap how did he get on with these uh, tiny tunnels uh, they are very small but the trains are small too uh, which surely adds to the problem did he did he travel in one uh, no, they, it's, it's like a ride-on train as opposed to a ride-in carriage uh-huh. train. If you watch the video, you'll see what I'm talking about. OK, that's the first thing after this broadcast for me. Uh, Rachel. Uh, in April, uh, the new designs for Battersea Power Station development uh, were unveiled by uh, Foster and & Partners and Frank Gehry. Battersea Power Station, after years and years of failed redevelopments and people companies going bust it's finally happening this is the malaysian consortium oh yes yes um yeah controversial because of that because quite a lot of the 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 new development has already been sold off plan in malaysia the the problem is basically that it's really hard for development companies to get finance unless they've got money up front the banks aren't fronting the money because they're all risk first at the minute obviously since the 2008 credit crunch um so the only way they can do that is to sell off plan london residents aren't really keen on buying something which they won't be really be able to move into for like three four years so it tends to be sold to investors who will never actually lay eyes on it and it's just going to be something that they will rent out in the future basically it's a lot more difficult to buy off plan if you want it for your own home rather than investment which is frustrating because, of course, it means that you've got all these houses, you know, that are being built, but they're not actually going into the home or the, the, they're not being homes for Londoners or they're being put out to rent and the rents are high because people want a return. And it's, it's basically, it's turning homes into a commodity. This is something that exercises me greatly, the fact that London's housing infrastructure can't cope with the level of demand that we have it is fundamentally unfair the fact that people who work in this city can't afford to really live in the city and you're seeing increasing levels of of rent rises due to investors seeing london as an opportunity to make some money um it's forcing out the actual character of the city itself and and the people who really deserve to be here and it's becoming this homogenized awful unaffordable place to be that's not to say that the whole of london is becoming like that but it is becoming tougher and tougher for real londoners um to stay here well that's true isn't it and it used to be the idea and we're only talking a very few years ago that people doing manual jobs for example they're the kind of people we thought well they can't afford to live in london but actually you could have uh, a young couple maybe each earning sort of an average twenty-five thousand pound salary and, and put those together you still can't afford to get on the ladder yeah it's it's there's this thing that's um 
officially called affordable housing. And now, for, from now on, whenever I refer to the phrase affordable housing, if listeners could uh, imagine that in sarcastic air quotes, that would be lovely because it's how I write it. So there's a government policy um, for affordable housing and it's that's replaced what used to be social housing or what we'd all think of as council housing, which is basically rent levels at about, say, 30-40% of, of your normal market rate. So, you know, what you'd pay in an estate agent if you went out, your normal private rented sector affordable housing again sarcastic air quotes can be up to 80 percent of the market rent that's obviously not affordable um and this is a deliberate policy it's been raised um because again the government have cut funding for house building so the developers need to find that money elsewhere there's loads to say on this. I'll mark your card, listener. We're going to do a special on this very subject. Rachel and some other experts in the area are going to dig into this uh, housing problem because it's just not going away. We're going to stay with 2014, though. And Ben, what have you got lined up? Uh, in April, um, I picked an article about where is the centre of London. It's actually an update from an article from a previous year, um, but with new technology, um, meaning that it, there's a sort of... a a more accurate way to define the centre of London. This sounds like an entirely uncontroversial subject. Except that the centre of London is south of the river, which some people will find controversial. <laughs> what? <laughs> Says a who? <laughs> so um, I am a South Londoner, so I'm quite happy about this, but other people might not be. Um, and um, yeah, I just think that's a, a really fun, light-hearted article, but actually one that gets everyone talking um, and something that everyone in, in London is quite interested in. Where is the centre? Can you, uh, in in a moment or two, uh, validate your claim? I can. The technology effectively um, takes the furthest north part of the Greater London area and the further south and puts a pin in the middle. When this was first done, our editor-at-large, Matt Brown, did actually cut out a shape of London and balance it on a pin um, (laughs) in order to prove this. Uh, And believe it or not, apparently technology has better ways to do that now. So um, this article actually talks about a computer programme that does a, a similar thing. This is Matt Brown, who has a background, I believe, in science. That's correct. <laughs> but isn't it the case that both Matt's balancing on a pin and the technology came up with about the same place? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Band science works. <laughs> uh, we move on to May of 2014. Uh, yes, May, uh, from my point of view, was a little bit selfish. It was one of your podcasts about uh, Trinity Boy Wharf, which I found fascinating, not just because it is one of the most incredible buildings in the city also happens to be the place that I had my wedding reception so I learned a whole bunch of stuff about the place that I was having a great big party at um, uh, in, in advance so that was what I enjoyed Rachel. Politics again, the local elections, the council elections in May. Hammersmith and Fulham, which was uh, the council, Tory council beloved of the government, um, got its backside kicked and it turned Labour, which was a surprise to, I think, pretty much everybody. Um, I think we can put, probably put the blame on that down to an awful lot of, again, controversial housing developments like Earl's Court um, and just some yeah, very unpopular decisions that, that were made over there. Um, but what I'm actually knocked at um is uh, a number of councils went completely like well barking a dagenham and newham were always on just went labor and they stayed it um but islington and lewisham uh now the in both councils the official opposition is now one green councillor in both 
in both councils, they are almost entirely Labour. And while if you're, you know, a left-thinking person, you might think, oh, that's a good thing. It's not, though. It's it's a one-party state. It's not actually helpful for local democracy. You basically, what you basically got is in these four councils, and, you know, in a couple of others as well, um, whatever Labour wants to do, Labour will get done. Which, if you don't agree with them, there's not a huge amount you can do. What were the general trends you were seeing across London during that period? Well, the, the Lib Dems got, like in Hammersmith and Fulham and the Tories, got their backsides kicked. Um, they actually got more seats in Sutton, which probably bodes well for them in the general election. But in other councils, they got completely wiped out. So there you go, Nick Clegg. Good job. I actually picked an article, um, Eat the EU, in London, which which I wrote um, following the elections, which Rachel was talking about um, as a sort of making a point of the fact that London didn't um, vote very much for UKIP uh, in terms of the rest of the UK. Um, and so just a playful dig at Nigel Farage and saying, we, we quite like the EU here. Um, this is where you can experience some of the different cultures that are in it. Um, yeah, so a bit of a bit of a fun two fingers up, really. There's surely a message in there, isn't there, that uh, if, if London isn't going for the UKIP idea as far as immigration goes, maybe there's something to be said for immigration. We meet lots of immigrants. A lot of us are immigrants. Immigration's good. It would seem that if, if London doesn't have a problem with immigration, then maybe there isn't such a problem with it. I totally agree, yeah. I don't think many other places outside London in the UK have anywhere near the number, the amount of immigra- immigration that we do. Um, maybe they should try it. They might like it. Yeah, it strikes me that in the places where UKIP is popular, it's quite often areas where they don't have immigration or they have very little immigration, and it's the fear of the unknown that it's much more driving the success of UKIP rather than the actual practical realities which we all experience on a, re- on a regular basis. Uh, we're nearly at the middle of the year and uh, June, uh, what, what was going on for you? Um, so June was, uh, I can't really go through this review of the year without touching on the secrets of the underground um, <clears throat> videos that we make that Jeff Marshall makes with us um and for me uh secrets of the circle line in june is probably my favorite episode actually um this is where he takes us on a tour of each individual line on the underground and uh reveals some little known facts about it this one was my favorite one um because of the tale of two different train companies operating from south kensington they operated from the same station but one operated clockwise and the other operated anti-clockwise. And if you bought a ticket somewhere and uh, it was going to be the long way around, they wouldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, those videos, definitely worth it. How, how many, is it one per line, has he done all of them? One per line, plus the DLR, yes. Yeah, well worth a look. Rachel? There was a lot more Matt Brown clambering about stuff. This time he went to the roof of Victoria Station. Is that the official name for the series of articles he produces? Matt Brown clambering about and stuff, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did he find on Victoria? Um, well, there's all the works that's, that's going on at the moment. Um, and he found, brilliant, he basically went up on a, it, it's all the glass roof, and he described it as crystalline foothills. Have you, you've picked the article just for that phrase, haven't you? Basically, yeah. I actually also singled out some of the tube videos, because I think they are um, very good uh, content. Um, I also saw there's an article about um, anti-homeless spikes being put up in Southwark. Was it you, Rachel, who wrote this? Of course it was me, yeah. 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 And, um, well, anti- anti-homeless are like pigeon spikes. Effectively, yeah. Um, and I just thought um, an article like that, sort of calling a council out on them, 
um, and looking into the further reasons, the further problems and other examples of this around London um, is quite worthwhile. Uh, could we dig a little further into that? I've always been conscious of those new style benches that they make where the, uh, the armrests are so close together that you can't lie down on them. And I always thought that was rather a cynical move. Uh, yeah, well, um, those benches, I believe, Rachel will know more, are actually called antisocial seating. I think it's awful that councillors are deliberately going out of their way to just make it difficult for people to, to find somewhere to, to put themselves, really. There's, there's two aspects to this. So... Um, this year I've, I've been talking to um, some rough sleeping charities and there, there's there's another article, I haven't picked it out, but there's another article somewhere on here um, where I went and looked into the, the causes of rough sleeping. And what the charities say is that actually sometimes measures like the spikes and the benches can be useful if it serves as a sort of push to get somebody in to help What's not helpful is if these spikes just go down and there's no, um, there's nothing then in place for the the people who are sleeping there to then go and get help. If they're just moving them on somewhere else, then it's it's stupid and inhumane. If what it does is then um, give them that extra shove that they need to go in and get help, then frankly that is better than having them die on the streets. But the the yeah, as you say, the other side to that is there's got to be a, a framework in place to uh, support them, and I know that uh, funding for hostels in particular is being cut. Oh yeah, I mean everything's being cut. Um, I think that the issue with these particular spikes is that they've been put down. Um, I don't think they were put down by the council. I think they might have been put down by the owner of the building, um, and they'd been done without consultation with anybody. So this was one of those situations where it was done because you know oh they didn't want you know anybody basically mucking up their doorway. Um, which is the wrong way to go about it, but in done properly in inverted commas, not sarcastic commas, but you know, um, it, it it's a legitimate um, technique. Yeah, sure, a bit of keep off the grass sounds bloody dangerous, though. Oh, what spikes? Yeah, spikes on the ground. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to fall on them. Yes, let that be the watchword as we head into the break and a word from our sponsor before we come back to the uh, halfway mark of 2014 and the arrival of a new editor at Londonist. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf with me, James Drury, Ben Nor, and Rachel Holdsworth at Londonist headquarters, where a late afternoon gloom has settled. The skies are darkening outside. It feels very wintry, even though the, day, the days are supposed to be getting longer by now, aren't they, already? Um, we are reviewing 2014, and we're up to... July. James, you're, you're on the horizon, but you're still not with us. <laughs> yeah. As it were. Metaphorically, yes, yes. Uh, yes, in terms of chronologically, yes. I, I started at Londonist in August. So um, July, I was not yet with Londonist, but I was very much... Uh, I have been an avid reader for a long time. So this picking this out was quite easy for me, really. Um, and it may be gloomy outside now, but uh, July taking me back to uh, where to play bubble football in London. <laughs> Where to do what? I know, yeah, where to play bubble football in London. It's, um, I don't know about you, but I find sport really can be quite, uh, I don't like doing it. 
Um, I, I, yeah, I think it might be the fact that I like eating out a lot. It's got something to do with that. Um, but anyway, to make exercising a bit more interesting appeals to me. And so strapping on a bl- inflatable bubble around yourself while you have to play football uh, is very much something that I found highly entertaining. And so, yes, bubble football. You see there's plenty of this on the home video shows where two people each holding a beach ball run at each other is it that basically yeah it's, it's, it is kind of like one of those kooky crackers game shows where people do stupid things and just manage to not about just about not get hurt yeah i think i'm up for some of that where, where can we do it by the way uh, you have to read the article to find out uh, okay he's forgotten <laughs> Beth. Oh, uh, no i should ask you i've asked you when did you join the nest uh i've been writing for londonist for years for about um five years um but i came on as food drink editor more fully um it would have been uh around about two three months ago so um so much more more recently than that and what have you picked us out for the middle of the year um i've picked uh, a selection of london's strangest statues i think <laughs> I, it's a shame you can't you can't see what i'm what i'm looking at here well, um, perhaps but, it's a good thing <laughs> but i will i will read the description that goes with it um a rotating gravity defying statue of a globe-headed ballerina inside a crystal ball um do you have any idea where you might see that in london um, Covent Garden. Exactly. Really? It is at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden, um, but it is um, not something that you would necessarily see just as you're walking past. You do have to look up and, and look for a particular side of the building, and it is there. Um, and there's several other very weird statues that you can find around London. I'm rather hoping there's a statue of two bubble football players. That's probably just about being commissioned, and is maybe maybe next year. You never know. <laughs> Rachel, um, I picked Secret Cinema. Cancel or the the series of cancellations for Secret Cinema. Remember this? They they recreated Hill Valley uh, to show Back to the Future, and I love Back to the Future as a kid. I watched that every Saturday morning for about three years. Never watched Back to the Future with me because I do say all the dialogue, and you'll want to punch me. But it was it wasn't ready on time. Um, I didn't actually get a ticket, despite my love for it, mainly because it was kind of expensive um but this, this made national news what, what was going it kept being cancelled didn't it day after day yeah it just um the site wasn't ready that the phrase that they they were using was um they're having difficulties meeting the technical requirements to satisfy the local authorities i mean there were rumors that they didn't have the the proper fire licensing ready and that it just wasn't finished but yeah it was cancelled for several days in, in in a row and it was it was suddenly like I mean, it was kind of, what, July, so we were getting into silly season, and it was sort of like hackney hipsters took over the national news. I think this was, I think this was the, the, the first bubbling over of the eruption of hipster hate, um, which has been bubbling along for quite a while now and has been tedious, should we say, um, but has really reached peak hipster hate, um, especially in the last couple of months, which is kind of really boring me. It's, it's so hipster to hate on hipsters. Because <laughs> we're right at the epicentre of hipsterdom right here, aren't we, in, uh, in Pool Street. Would we consider ourselves hipsters? Right. <laughs> I think that's a no from Rachel. <laughs> ben, are you a hipster? Uh, no. A closet hipster? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> James? What is a hipster? It's like trying to define a whole group of people by what they wear and, and so on, but I don't think they would self-identify as that anyway, and then within that there's subgenres, it's, yeah, no. 
Well, that's three yeses as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, the fact is, yeah, like I said, if you hate on being a hipster, you're a hipster yourself. So, And who can imagine uh, why health and safety requirements would come to the fore in a production involving hitting a clock tower with lightning and setting fire to a road when a car drives up it? Well, that's no problem there, sure. That sounds completely reasonable to me. Was, wasn't he trying to get, like, 1.21 gigawatts of this history flowing through him as he was connecting the two? T- I told you, I've seen it so many times. Uh, ben. In August, uh, Rachel wrote an article about how London could cope with a part-time mayor. Um, uh, obviously, this came out after Boris Johnson has said about running for MP. Um, and I think the, the gist of the article was we could probably do all right without, without having him the full time. But already he writes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details lots of books and appears on TV programmes and I wonder how full-time he is already well this is the, the the crux of the article is that he basically kind of already is he's got an awful lot of um, advisors there is an argument to be made that, that Sir Eddie Lister is basically the power behind the throne and doing most of the, the work, the hard work anyway. He already makes an awful lot of the planning decisions. My theory is um, on the whole Boris thing, being mayor and an MP at the same time, because he's, he's going to get elected in Oxbridge. It's, it's a very safe Tory seat. Um, my- w- weren't there a large range of 15 or so people who wanted to be the Tory candidate? And uh, surprise, surprise, Boris. Yeah, yes, oh, yes, they went to, um, it didn't even need to go to a second round in the selection meeting, he just, he walked it. Um, so yeah, so my theory is, he, he says he's, he's going to do the both jobs for the full year, but if you actually look through, um, I think it's the, the GLA Act or something, which which I did because I'm that sad, um, the rules for the election say that if the mayor stands down within six months of six months before an election there doesn't have to be another one rerun and what will happen is that the deputy mayor will take over um and of course running an election is quite expensive and to hold an, another election like nine ten months before the the next one's due in 2016 because the one in 2016 will happen anyway no matter what happens with boris i suspect what will happen is he'll do it for six months and then say oh yes actually um 
it's a bit more work than I thought this, this being an MP lark and, and mayor so I'm stepping down and I think what will happen is we'll get um, Victoria Boric as mayor for six months that's my personal theory it seems to me like that's an opportunity to say fantastic a female at the head of London for six months. For six months. Is, that, that's, it's be, it's is there a good thing there? It's not going to mean anything. Um, not mean anything. It's not going to, with six months, what can you do? It's not going to make any bit of difference. Has she declared her intention to stand? or? Um, I don't think... No, I think she might have ruled herself out for 2016, for to be the Tory candidate 2016. I like Victoria Boric, actually. She's got a lot of sense on her. She's she's um, current Westminster councillor. Um, I don't think she'll do any harm. But again, like I say, what can you do in, in six months? She's basically... If this does happen, she would just basically be, you know, steering London into 2016 election. I think there's an article idea there. What would you do as Lord, as uh, Mayor of London for six months? <laughs> I reckon I could get something done. <laughs> yeah, the, the the speed at some of these, the which at which some of these things go, makes it quite interesting to see how much you could not get done in six months. Um, yes, August. August. I chose uh, how London's road junctions got their names. Sounds like one of the most boring pieces of all time ever, but actually this is one of a series that we ran which looked at how things in London actually got their names. And it's very comprehensive, um, how some of the boroughs got their names and how some of the rivers uh, in London got their names. And actually, um, you'd be surprised how many people care about this. And I found it very fascinating. Well, it's one of my great pleasures walking around the city in particular. Some of the strange street names there and a little digging repays the, it, the effort. It really uncovers the rich history that we have in this city when you read the familiar names from that you see on streets or some of the wonky names you see from streets and then you learn as to exactly why they're called that. And it's mostly to do with uh, a geographical thing or a great local story. Um, I think it really helps you to delve into the history of this city. Uh, you're using the analogue version of the site at the moment. Um, can you recall any of the Junction's stories? No. <laughs> <laughs> Appetite whetted, we head to the online version, which is far more uh, linkable. Uh, <laughs> uh, ben, we're moving on now, I think, to September. I actually picked um, another article from that same series for September, which was how London's terminal stations got their name. Now, before we go a step further, can you remember anything about that article? I luckily do have it in front of me. So. <laughs> um, one that I thought was just just a sort of snippet of the kind of information um, it has is Cannon Street, is that you might assume you could guess how that station got its name, but it's not to do with um, cannons of any kind. Um, it's actually uh, an abbreviation of Candlewitch Street, um, and it was a street of candle makers. Um, so a, li- a few sort of nerdy bits of information like that about every every station in London, every terminal station. Have you got another one or two for us? Uh, I will have to have a little bit of a look. While, while you were frantically scrolling, yeah. we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, Rachel? In September, I went to Heathrow and rode the self-driving cars. I mean, this wasn't just something that I did for a laugh. I, Jeff actually went and filmed me doing it. Um, yeah, the self-driving cars, have you... This is something that, that people really don't know that much about. Um, so between Terminal 5 and the business car park, there's this little um, fleet of self-driving pods and, and you just get in them and they just magically fit. Well, obviously not magic, but it feels like magic. And they just ferry you to your destination. And you don't have to be travelling, you don't have to be parked in the business car park. You can just go to Terminal 5 and get on these things. And 
I mean, all right, the view is just of, you know, some concrete trackways and a few car parks. But there's also, you, you go over a couple of little rivers and you can see planes coming in. And it is just the coolest thing. So you you and a bunch of mates could just pile down there on a Friday and uh, have a bit of fun on those? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe you know, don't have a massive party on there. Um, and bear in mind, they have got CCTV. And, oh, the guy who, who took us round, there, there has actually been naughtiness spotted on that. They have they have got a control room and they do monitor it. So, you know, if, if you if you want to join, like, the self-driving pod equivalent of the Mile High Club, you are being watched. <sighs> There's a crude joke about self-driving there, but I, <laughs> let's come back to Ben. Yeah, another fact as to how a station got its name, Moorgate was named after after the the walls around the city of London and the moor being a, a large open space outside the walls and the gate being the way into London. So that's that's how Moorgate got its name. Um it's yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interesting little snippets. <laughs> we remain with uh, September for one more story. For me September is marked by the uh, closure of Exhibit B. Um, which was forced to close by protesters who felt that the subject matter was racist. Um, it was a performance which was being staged over at the Barbican, um, and the, the the protest outside uh, led the organisers uh, and the produce to, producers to decide that they wouldn't allow the play to go ahead. Um, uh, people were concerned about the fact that um, it highlighted the disgusting, um, uh, the disgusting practice in the past that we had of, of bringing people over from Africa and putting them in cages as human exhibits, and it really highlighted the vile way that we treated people from Africa with this great view of being, um, the, you know, this superior race and so on. Um, and from my point of view, I, I agree that as a as a vile bit of history, it's it's I can understand the protesters' point of view that. We shouldn't be viewing this as a as a piece of entertainment, and that we should be um, we should be sensitive to the way that it's being handled. Um, however, I felt that it, from my personal point of view, the fact that no one was allowed to go and see this and make up their own mind, um, and in fact that the the black actors that were involved in the performance itself were comfortable with how it was being portrayed, I found it a great shame that no one was able to go and see it. The, what was at the centre of this then? Was it that they were reproducing that um, the, the, the spectacle of it without sort of an editorial line condemning it, or was it merely by mentioning it? I think each individual person would have their own reasons for why they were protesting against it. A reasonable part of it feels to me a little bit like some people heard about the headlines of a human zoo of black people being portrayed as entertainment and had a reaction to it which you can understand but once you perhaps dig a little deeper than that I think there's some other elements around uh, the message that was being portrayed which was that it was a deeply shameful part of European history and I certainly never knew about it it's something that um, I don't think it's certainly not taught in in schools um, and it's I think it's something that we should be aware of it might help to uh, it might help for us to understand a bit better about why some of these issues are so inflammatory. We move uh, in time on and fashion from September to October. Let's stay with you, James. Uh, yes, um, from my point of view, uh, um, I think my favourite piece from October was actually the publication of a book called The Information Capital, in which some very clever chaps uh, over at UCL uh, took a lot of massive big data from London and mapped it out into some really, really very attractive representations of London. If James Cheshire isn't involved in this, I'll eat my shoes. It is indeed.
thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, um, I, it's just such. It really appeals to me. Um, the, I, I love seeing the visualization of quite complex data um, because it really appeals to me as a journalist, which is taking some very complex information and making it understandable for for everybody. And this truly is a very beautiful book. Yeah, and the, the, well, beautiful. So there really is beauty in some of the representations that I've seen from that department. Mm, absolutely, um, the maps are stunning, and it really helps you to get a good, a great picture and a greater understanding of London without poring over tables and numbers, which. I'm not going to lie, I find quite boring. <laughs> no, the commu- I saw one uh, a, a year or two ago, the commuter journeys uh, through a 24-hour period, whether it's Boris bikes or people driving or train journeys, and it was all represented as lights moving around a map of London. It's just a s- spectacular thing. But yes, the real highlight of 2014, probably for me as a whole, and I know for the whole team, was our 10th birthday, which was a great opportunity for us all to mark just how much Londonist has changed and London has changed in the last 10 years. Um, in fact, you did a very wonderful podcast about the very self same thing so for me october the highlight was londonist's 10th birthday there are some amazing photos online as well of the party it's sort of a who's who of londonophiles absolutely uh, we're very lucky as londonists to have a lot of love from people who love london very much so we were very grateful to them um october ben I've highlighted the um, opening of a Paleolithic restaurant called Pure Taste in West London. Paleolithic, for those who don't know, is um, it's meant to be the caveman cuisine. So it is theoretically only eating food that we would have eaten in the in the days that we were cave people, and that is not now extinct. Exactly. <laughs> How much does that leave? <laughs> well, I think. Um, Something that did uh, amuse me, if you look at some of the the food they are serving, we've got um, avocado oil, coconut, tapioca starch, agave, dates. It doesn't really... That's not what I have in my head when I I sort of picture... Which I I don't that often picture cavemen eating. But but if I did do that, um, I wouldn't imagine them to be eating dates sort of drizzled with avocado oil. Um, So I think, as well as it being an interesting new... Um, dining experience it's also quite fun to see the the ways they are promoting this style of eating um, and the diet that they're pushing as a healthy way to eat I wonder if they've got this right it sounds delicious but I wonder if they've got this right because I I thought that uh, we went through a long period where we ran around after things chasing them and killing them and eating them and nuts and berries also and then we went through an agricultural phase and this sounds like the agricultural I think they've they've missed a trick we should have uh, things that are still bleeding and making noise there is also meat at this restaurant but yeah I totally agree with you I think it doesn't really sound very likely trying to sell um, the idea of a diet um, from um, 10,000 years ago as something which is beneficial to your health when if you think that life expectancy was about 35 years at that time I think is a bit of a non sequitur <laughs> they should uh, combine it with the Tour One Decky style, so they should do some trepanning as, as well, and then you, <laughs> then you get to eat your Paleolithic meal. <laughs> Rachel, whose eyes are popping out at the thought of that? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm just picturing trepanning. Okay, um, yeah, moving swiftly on, um, I've picked out... Um, so one of the things that I think Londonist does really well is just the uber-nerd stuff, and basically one of the people who does that the best is 
Matt Brown, who has again gone out and done something uber nerdy. So over summer, Matt just spent uh, quite a lot of time in pubs and cafes and and restaurants uh, watching people, not in a pervy way, but to see how many of them were walking around uh, using their mobile phones. And he genuinely observed 5,250 people. Uh, And he worked out that 22% of, of Londoners based on this sample, walk around on their mobile phones, which is just really annoying. And I mean, I've done it. I think we've all done it. But it is kind of just the worst thing you can do. I'm surprised it's such a low percentage, actually. Actually, actually, I think the 20% refers to people using their phone in some sort of way. So it's not necessarily just staring at it, which I have to say is becoming increasingly a bugbear of mine as I walk quite quickly and uh, like to not get in people's way and I feel that walking while watching where you're going is a fairly essential part of the fairly simple process of walking. Bring on the Google Glass, really. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a a problem with people um, being obsessed with their phones at the moment. I can think of times even when I'm just down the pub with friends, the number of people who are on their phones perhaps for legitimate reasons like they've, they've just received a, a message they think might be important but um, I imagine <laughs> like, I'm sorry you sound like my granddad <laughs> there may be a legitimate reason for this person using <laughs> perhaps a, a family emergency has cropped up <laughs> well I think there needs to be a good reason um, especially when they're sort of you know just really slow and they're not drinking their drinks fast enough and they get <laughs> you get out of sync with a round it's, it's terrible I think we don't need to read too far between the lines. You've had to pick up a few rounds this year, haven't you? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the, the bit I object to is when you've got a busy concourse, like King's Cross seems to be the one that I notice it most at, you'll have somebody arrive at the top of the escalators and they'll be looking at their phone, busy texting or whatever it is, and they'll walk right through a huge crowd of people, all of whom are moving in that wonderful way that crowds do and working around them, and everybody else just has to jump out of the way of this person. You can only take... There's a critical mass of people like that that you can have in any given crowd. Yes, that's what makes me very mad. Uh, we, we go to November. Or um, Mo- Did you do November? I didn't do November. No. You have a beard already. Yeah. Does it count if you if you just have one and just do it? I don't think that does count, does it? I don't know. We've, we've got the three of us who are, are beard capable here, as far as I know. All of us have beards. Um, this, this bit of a, a non-event for us, I suspect. What, what was the event of uh, November? Uh, for November, I picked a, a video of donating blood, which a few people from Londonist went along um, and donated blood and filmed it, showing that it's not as scary as people might think, which is... I think a very important thing to do it would be interesting to know if it how many people actually have watched that video and thought oh I will do it but I know that I have myself um thought that and will be will be doing so shortly so yeah I think it's a a very worthwhile post what what was the impetus behind this exercise it it was it was me that actually went and did it basically I've been meaning to give blood for ages but I'd always been really really scared of needles then through last year I had a series of blood tests had them done at proper blood test clinics and I realized actually when people do this every day they get quite good at it and it doesn't hurt so I thought okay if I'm going to go along and give blood for the first time why not film it um again prove that you know it's it's you know, show the process um but also um as just a personal thing of, of you know uh, give me one less reason to back out so yeah I went along and it was it was absolutely fine it barely hurt it, it, at all um and yeah, they, they give you really nice biscuits at the end. Uh, I'm in. 
uh, what, what was your article for November? Um, I think that the big story for, for November... Well, it's always a big story whenever it comes out. It's uh, the next year's fairs for, for, um, for, for the tube fairs. And TFL did a really big thing this time. What they've done is they've, they've changed the pay-as-you-go. So at the minute, if you travel before half nine in the morning, um, your, your cap for the day um, is more expensive than if you travel later... Um, is like the peak cap and the off-peak cap. I think for me on Zone Three, it's about ten pounds if you're going to Zone One. It's like seven seventy if you go after half nine. And what they've done is they've scrapped that, and there's just one cap. And how much is the cap? See, it depends where you live. If you're in inner London, the cap is actually lower than the current off-peak cap. So I've worked this out. I'm going to be quids in, man. Um, but if you live in outer London, um, it's more exp- it's lower than the peak cap but higher than the off-peak cap so if you um travel sort of off-peak um or you're taking kids in it's actually going to cost you money we think the reason that the tfl has done this they've been looking into doing like a part-time travel card for some time so you know if if you only work three days a week you're not being penalized and it's also to iron out the discrepancy between pay-as-you-go on oyster and contactless pay-as-you-go because on contactless They've done this clever little um, gadget gizmo thingy whereby... That was technical, wasn't it? Catch gizmo, for God's sake. Um, yes, whereas it will automatically cap you um, at the cost of a week travel card. But that doesn't happen on Oyster. So I think they've, they've, they've sort of worked out the equivalent day cap. So now if you're on page you go oyster you won't lose out on contactless it's all a bit basically you have to sit there with like the charts and try and work it out and it always it is all a bit complicated um what's the variance though? i mean if you if you did sit down with all the information to hand what sort of saving might you be able to make the maximum daily saving possible if you live in zones one to three is actually 310 a day which is it's it's not shabby no across a year that's enormous yeah um Actually, no, sorry, if you live in zones one to five, it's um, 4 90 a day. But again, this is comparing the peak cap to um, this, this lower cap. If you are comparing the off-peak cap to the new cap, you're actually losing out if you're living out of London. I, I usually have a fairly cynical view of most corporations' uh, motives for doing all sorts of things. And if things are complex, then there's usually a reason for their complexity. I'm thinking about energy prices um, straight away. Is, is it your view that these various systems that are being run, have they got the customer's best interests at heart somewhere along the line? Um, I think they are genuinely trying to simplify it. Like with um, the cycle hire, that, that system is also being changed next year. Um, the the yeah, TFL are trying to say that they they are simplifying it, and it is simpler. Instead of a um, a, a weird and varied um, system of, of stepped charges for how long you have the bike for, it's just free for half an hour and then two pounds for every thirty minutes after that, which actually works out more expensive if you have it for the bike for a short length of time, but cheaper if you have it for a long amount of time. Um, so again, with everything, anything, there's there's winners and and there's losers, and I I genuinely think that what TFL are trying to do with the page go capping and the cycle hire is straighten it out and iron out some of the inconsistencies between contactless and oyster. It's better for some people than others. Which is a long answer to a short question, but that's one of those things that affects most of us. So it's it's good to uh, be aware of those changes. James, November. Uh, well, I think one of my this highlights one of my favourite things about working uh, at Londonist. The wonderful way that everyone engages with the content 
um, that we produce. So uh, in November, we put a call out uh, asking everybody what they would like to rename tube stations to to make it a bit more sensible. And the answers came in their thousands. When you say more sensible, what sort of thing did you have in mind? Um, so sometimes you've got some slightly confusing named tube stations, uh, you know, places which aren't near what they are near or which might be more useful for a tourist. So, you know, you could uh, rename Hoban uh, Covent Garden 2, for example. Or um, So, yeah, the, uh, the responses came in in their thousands and we renamed all 270 tube stations. We're looking here at the map of the tube. And if you didn't already know what the stops are called, you could have tried. I can see Tottenham Court Road there, but it seems to have moved. Leicester Square has been turned into Chinatown, which makes perfect sense to me. So let's go along the central line here. We're starting in the east, Roman Road, Norton Folgate, City, Cheapside, Gray's Inn Road, Kingsway, St Giles Circus, which was previously Tottenham Court Road, but that's been nudged up the northern line. Uh, Regent Street, Tyburn, Speakers... Oh, fantastic. Um, Hyde Park North, yeah, that does make a lot more sense. Yeah, um, it was uh, just a creative exercise for uh, people to put their brains to use. And um, again, we had such a fantastic response, and that's what really excites me about working at Londonist. Do you know, this, this reminds me massively of being in Canada, where all of the names are the same, but the locations are entirely different. Look at a map of Ontario and you'll see what I mean. So I've just been looking at this myself and I have a feeling that what we renamed as Tyburn... Oh, no. So um, Matt, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, renamed, again, all 272 stations, um, but what they would be called in medieval times. And I, had, I just had this, this hunch that what we'd renamed as Tyburn, I think we've renamed um, Marble Arch... Is that... No, that's when we renamed... Bond Street, Tyburn, and uh, we renamed Oxford Circus to the medieval tube Baptist Tyburn Road. That would have been cool if it if it was, but oh, actually no, sorry, again. Um, okay, what's the central line tube stop? You're listening to the breakdown <laughs> of a contributor here on Londonist. What's the tube station? This is what happens when too much London goes into somebody's head. Of Bond Street. Is that Queensway? Marble Arch. Marble Arch. Right. Yeah, so we renamed Marble Arch Tyburn on the medieval map. Speaker's Corner, our readers and audience renamed it as. Yeah, but... Um, but, but. The, the readers renamed type. Oh my god, this is too hard. <laughs> this is what happens in the office all the time. <laughs> is it really? It's the people going, "Oh, what's this station? I don't know. What's this one?" I think we, when we were trying to work out the the simplified and again sarcastic quotation marks, um, cycle higher charges. About three of us had a breakdown trying to work out what the actual charges were. There's a reason that some of us become journalists, and it's uh, because we would make terrible accountants. <laughs> Well, what, what I'm noticing here is a trend, is that everybody's got their areas of expertise and they're working away and producing important material. And then Matt Brown's name seems to come into the frame with an outrageous project of some description and everything gets thrown off kilter and uh, breakdowns ensue. Yeah, it's pretty much Matt for you. <laughs> um, what is this, uh, this editor-at-large role then? Um, does that mean he's, he's roaming widely? Yes, people of London beware. Uh, he is now out and about, freed up, he's not bound by the desk any longer, and he's free to conjure up um, some more wonderfully entertaining London lunacy. And that brings us to December. Well, it doesn't bring us to December, but he, he did the medieval thing quite recently, didn't he? Uh, yeah, it was just a couple of weeks ago. OK, that's a valid link there, we'll have that one. Uh, December 2014, uh, what's been cooking in the last few weeks? Oh, the Garden Bridge. The that is neither a garden nor a bridge. 
I only just found out that Johanna Lumley was behind this. Yeah, she's been... It's, it's a pet project of hers, and it, it got launched last year, and it sounded like quite a cool thing, you know, like quite nice, like pretty walkway across the Thames. It was all meant to be originally privately funded, and then the government gave it 30 million quid, and then TfL gave it 30 million quid. And then we discovered that it wouldn't be open all the time, so it's not going to be open all between midnight and 6am, and it's going to be closed 12 days a year for fundraising events. And when it gets busy, which it probably will, you're going to have to queue to get on it. And I just think, if this, this is a tourist attraction. Why are we publicly funding this? And also, yeah, there, is, there are two perfectly serviceable bridges either side of it, which will actually function as bridges. You've just got put me in mind of public-private partnerships that have gone towards making river crossings. Are you thinking of the cable car, by any chance? Well, I don't notice queues. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, maybe if they built the cable car where they're planning to build a garden bridge, maybe it would get more use. Uh, December, Ben. Um, well, in December, the Serial Killer Cafe opened on Brick Lane. <laughs> where the hell we were going as a, as a light ending to the show. <laughs> OK, yes. Um, and it, did, it caused quite an uproar from, from many different people. Um, which, this, this isn't Jack the Ripper connected, is it? it it's not, no. It is, um, it is a, a cafe that just serves breakfast cereal. Um, uh, there are over 120 different types of cereal, several different milks, different toppings, and a lot of people seem to get very upset that a cafe was doing that and charging two fifty to three pounds a bowl for this cereal and saying that this was outrageously expensive. Um, I disagree. I don't think once you've um, considered markup and the rates that this cafe will inevitably be paying on Brick Lane. The two fifty for anything in a in a cafe style environment is is too much. I think that's it's up to every individual if they want to spend that on cereal. Um, but I don't think it's it's all that much, especially when you consider that the cereals are largely imported. I don't know why personally anyone would go there and have a, a box of you know have a bowl of cornflakes when you could buy a box of them from Tesco's. I do understand the the cafe environment would be appealing, but I think when you've got um, a whole menu of weird and wonderful breakfast cereals from around the world, such as some Korean mini Oreo cereal that um, isn't available anywhere else in this country, to my knowledge, then I think that would be more appealing. What was the nub of this? Because I, I think I've heard some of the outrage and it seemed to, to my ear, I wasn't listening closely, but it seemed to go along the lines of how dare you charge money for food when there are people without any money nearby, which seems a faintly ludicrous argument. Yeah, this really uh, leapt to national attention. Again, going back to my point about uh, peak hipster hate, uh, when Channel 4 news reporter came along and grilled one of the owners on whether he thought it was not an outrage that in one of the poorest boroughs in the country they were charging £3.50 for a bowl of cereal. It's a kind of stupid question, really. I mean, Tower Hamlets is a borough which has Canary Wharf and which um, also has some of the most deprived areas in the whole country. It is uh, that diversity which makes Tower Hamlets quite an exciting place to be. And um, just going into a small business and giving them a load of stick for producing a service which some people will pay for um, and some people won't um, seems to me to be a little churlish I always think that stories like that 
eventually the cafe owners do quite well out of it though don't they because they've had their name mentioned on channel 4 news we're mentioning it now this is good publicity surely yeah it must be and i'm sure it's very busy there are a lot of people around here that will pay that money for a bowl of cereal and as ben said to eat some slightly more exotic cereal than what you might be able to get at your usual supermarket how did your year finish as far as the stories on london is go from my point of view we had uh, some really exciting christmas coverage which if we're all sitting here listening to this on boxing day may seem a little uh past now but uh, having a look at our christmas coverage there's some really great stuff on what dickens did for london and um uh, scrooge's uh, london mapped um but the thing i wanted to really highlight was uh, a, an etiquette piece that we published earlier in december about don't be a don't be a brolly wally don't be one of those people who doesn't know how to use an umbrella on the streets of London. You know, this is a very crowded city. There's a lot of people moving around and some people just don't get it. Some people do. Some people understand precisely the danger in the pointy end of an umbrella. And I've seen people walking, in fact, walking across those station concourses with the brolly extended in front of them like a, a lance, ready to skewer oncomers. In fact, combine them with a mobile phone user and you've got a kebab right there. <laughs> yeah. um, how has the piece gone down? Are, are people taking this advice, do you feel? Um, I'd like to think so. It's certainly got a good reaction. I think it's one of those pieces which seems to get people quite enthused used shall we say around just general good manners about using an umbrella don't be selfish yeah manners are always one of those things whenever you put out a list of grievances that londoners have manners are really at the base of most of the complaints aren't they the way you use the machines to get onto the tube bus etiquette all of that kind of stuff it matters in 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 a busy city like ours you've got to have consideration for others let's finish with one prediction or look ahead of another kind whatever comes to mind for 2015 what are you looking forward to what are you anxious about rachel um oh, for me it's probably the the general election so we'll be covering that and um yeah it's going to be one of the most interesting general elections in a while nobody quite knows how it's going to go um and obviously it's going to have a massive impact on london so yeah, we're going to be going to be looking at that and all the the different constituencies and you know some nerdy, some not so nerdy. This this is your year, really, isn't it? Oh, the twenty sixteen is going to be my year, the mayoral election. Just let's just really look ahead. Ben, uh, well, I talked about some of London's strangest restaurants um, earlier, and I'm looking forward to to putting together another another collection of London's strange restaurants next year because I think there are a few on the horizon. Some of which I've mentioned in articles throughout the year. There's um. Already there's a series of pop-up death cafes um, held in various locations around London where people can go and talk about death whilst um, enjoying a cup of tea or something similar. Um, And there is supposedly a proper permanent venue to be opening next year in London. There's also a restaurant coming where it's all designed for people dining alone. Um, So there's only tables for one in this restaurant. I don't think either of those are totally like confirmed have planning permission and things um and a site but it's very likely that they will both open before the year's out so i'll be i'll be keeping an eye on those this, this place where the conversation is supposed to be about death the example of a food stuff there was completely ordinary no, not a death themed cup of tea or anything just a cup of tea so essentially this is just a normal cafe but you're supposed to talk about death when you get there that's a very odd concept yeah that's exactly the concept it's not not death themed food or food that has any danger of killing you um but um i think the the concept being um 
death is something that is on people's minds and it's a good idea to have somewhere where they can go and, and talk about it. I'm not convinced it would be top of my list to go to, although if it does open, I will uh, try it out for the benefit of Londonist readers. Can we be there when you do? You can do if you want to also talk about death. Yes, we're, we're booked in for an episode on that if that comes about. Uh, James, 2015, what does it hold for you? Uh, yes, the election is very forefront in my mind, and I think it's going to be very interesting. One element that I'm particularly interested to see how that develops over 2015 is this conversation around um, the devolvement of more powers to uh, large groups of cities like London mm. and uh, Manchester and so on. And that is a conversation which I think is gathering noise and gathering volume at the moment and I think I'm interested to see where that's going to go next year Well we look forward to that and we'll be having a look back at the year on Londonist Out Loud in our end of year episode coming up next for now though just a few days to go before the end of year celebrations i hope you've had a fantastic year and a wonderful holiday period and are looking forward to 2015 as we are for now though from london hq james Drury, ben noran rachel holdsworth thanks very much And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to James Drury, Ben Norham and Rachel Holdsworth. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea and Anne Quentin Morph. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.